Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we're going to discover the mysteries of Christ that were hidden but are now revealed in the Passover. And we will see how Christ perfectly fulfilled the ordinance of the Passover and has become our Passover lamb. Our story begins in the book of Exodus. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This was the word of the Lord to Pharaoh. The Exodus from Egypt celebrates the liberation of the Jewish people from slavery, and it marked the birth of the nation of Israel. It is considered by the Jewish people to be the single most important event in our history. The Exodus was both miraculous and divinely orchestrated entirely at God's hand, and our liberation was for the sole purpose of becoming His people and serving Him. And then later in the third month after the Exodus, the Lord brought us out into the wilderness. There He established His Mosaic covenant with us. He set up our law, our priesthood, our calendar, and He gave us His holy convocations, including the Passover. The celebration of the Passover was commanded to be observed with the roasting of a paschal lamb and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It was consecrated as an eternal ordinance of remembrance with the nation of Israel. And now for more than 3,000 years, the Jewish people have been celebrating this occurrence each year in what is called a Seder. The word Seder means order of the Passover, and the booklet we use to tell the story is called a Haggadah, which comes from the Hebrew word vihigadita, which means to tell. So let's talk about the biblical ordinances of the Passover. What today is traditionally characterized as Passover, or Pesach, is comprised of three separate overlapping convocations. The sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, called the Korban Pesach, followed by the Festival of Unleavened Bread, Hagamatzot, and during that time also the offering of the first fruits, Reshit Katsir. The day of the Passover falls on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. This is the month of Nisan. And it was on that day that the priests would inspect and prepare the lambs for slaughter in the morning. And then, beginning in the afternoon, they would offer them as a Passover sacrifice on the bronze altar in the temple. The sacrifices would continue throughout the night, ceasing before dawn as commanded by the Lord. And this intertwined the day of Passover with the festival of unleavened bread into one continuous convocation and celebration. The first and seventh days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were ordained as minor Sabbaths. And on the day after this minor Sabbath, not to be confused with Saturday, the Jewish people were required to bring an offering of first fruits of their harvest to the priest. During that time, traditionally, it was the barley harvest. And then 50 days from the second day began the counting of weeks, which established the date for the festival of weeks called Shavuot, also known as Pentecost. And so while Passover celebrates the miraculous exodus from slavery in Egypt, the Feast of Weeks celebrates the giving of the Torah, which is the law, the law of Moses at Mount Sinai called Matan Torah. Now we understand today that Christ, Yeshua, perfectly fulfilled these four events at his first advent. He was scourged and crucified on the day of the Passover sacrifice. He was buried before the Sabbath on the first day. 
He lay in the tomb on the second day, which was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and a minor Sabbath rest. And he rose from the tomb early on the morning of the third day, which was the first day of the week. And it happened to be also the Feast of First Fruits in that year, what we call now Resurrection Sunday. And then 50 days after the Sunday came the Feast of Weeks, known as the Day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem. And it was on that day the church was born in the power of the Holy Spirit to go forth and preach the gospel. Everything was perfectly fulfilled exactly according to God's Hebrew calendar. So let's talk about the preparation for the Passover Seder. Before the Seder, there are two important traditions that take place. On the evening preceding the Passover, the Jewish people search all the property for leaven, called chametz, by the light of a candle. And we read the correlation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then on the next night, on the eve of the Seder, before sunset, the mother of the house would light the festival candles, called Lehad Likner, and these are similar to those that are lit for Shabbat. And the correlation in Scripture is from John chapter 1, where it says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So let's talk about the order, the structure of the Seder. It's actually comprised of 15 parts, and it begins with the Kiddush, called Sanctification of the Meal, and it ends with the prayers of acceptance. And about two-thirds of the way through, we actually have our meal, our celebration meal. Now, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, also known as Rashi, he's a very famous rabbi, he correlated the 15 steps of the Seder with the 15 steps that the Levites took to ascend into the temple. Also, the 15 songs of ascent, called Shir Hamalot, Psalms 120-134, through that they would sing as they would enter the temple during the festival. And so going back to these required elements of the Seder, we know that we had the Paschal Lamb, which today is represented by a shank bone called Zeroah. We have our unleavened bread, or Matzah, or Matzot. And we have our bitter herbs called Maror, represented either by horseradish, endive lettuce, or romaine lettuce. Now, the Lord also required all sacrifices in the temple to be offered with salt or a drink offering of wine. And these were later incorporated into the Seder from the services in the temple. So what do the four cups of wine represent? There are several opinions about this, but I like this one taken from Exodus chapter 6. It says, Number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then number two, I will rescue you from their bondage. And then three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then four, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And so these four parts represent four promises to the nation of Israel. The first part is the cup of sanctification. The second part is the cup of deliverance. The third is the cup of redemption. And the fourth is the cup of restoration. Now, we again know that Yeshua presently has fulfilled these first three cups. So that means there is still one cup yet to be fulfilled at a second coming. And this is the cup of restoration. 
Now, the Passover is called the night of watching, a night that the rabbis tell us has been watched continuously since the six days of creation. In the Talmud, which is the rabbinic commentary on the Torah, during the month of Nisan, which is the first month in the Hebrew calendar, Israel was delivered from bondage. But then they tell us that in the month of Nisan, we are told that they will be delivered again in a time to come. And so Israel's final redemption will begin on the same night as their first redemption. And so, for this reason, Elijah, who is called the harbinger of the Messiah, is the symbol for the Passover Seder. Yeshua said in Matthew 17, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And so there's now this tradition of setting aside a fifth cup of wine called the cup of Elijah. So let's talk about the matzot. They're called the bread of affliction. On the Passover table, there are three unleavened pieces of bread. The middle matzah is broken in two, and the smaller piece is returned to its place. The larger piece is wrapped in linen cloth and is hidden. This larger piece is called the afikomen, which translated from Greek means that which comes after dinner, or what we call dessert. And so in the tradition of the Seder, after the dinner, the younger children will go out and search for the hidden afikomen. So let's explore the New Testament scriptures that reveal these mysteries to us. In John chapter 19, it says, Then they took the body of Christ and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. In Luke chapter 19, it's as if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And lastly here, Romans 11, Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So what do these three verses represent? Well, the first we see is that Jesus was wrapped in linen. And in fact, we see that he, in fact, is that afikomen. He is the sweet thing that will come at the end of the dinner. And we also know that Jesus has been hidden from their eyes. But there is a time that is coming when the Jewish people will go out and search for their Messiah. And so the Lord has promised, he has declared that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer, who is Christ, will come out of Zion, which is the place of his holy abode, and he will save all of Israel. Now again, matzah is called the bread of affliction. And this first, very first Passover at the time of the Exodus set a new course for the nation of Israel, breaking with things of the past. It was a new season for the, for the Jewish people. And so for this reason, it is apparent that the bread of affliction points to something in the future, something that was to come. And we know that this is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the bread of affliction that was to be eaten by someone designated as an onan. So let me explain what an onan means. An onan is defined as someone who is in a state of mourning or bereavement. In Hebrew, we call it aninut. This is the period between the death of a near relative and their burial. We know that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. And since the commandment of bitter herbs was to be eaten with the paschal lamb, we can conclude their prophetic reference to the suffering Messiah, not exclusively our bondage in Egypt. The prophet Isaiah declared in chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so therefore, the Lord God is the Onan. He is the one 
who bereaves the death of his only begotten son. That's how much God loves us. He was willing to send his only son to die on the cross for our sin. Let's talk about God's everlasting covenants. The Haggadah, the book that we read on Passover, says, Let all who are hungry eat. Let all who are needy come and celebrate the Passover. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 55, where it reads, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. This verse in Isaiah promises the everlasting covenant of salvation to all flesh, Jew and Gentile alike. And salvation for us is found in none other than the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So on the night of the Last Supper, what I like to call the Last Seder, Yeshua officiated the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, declaring in 1 Corinthians 11, we read, In the same manner, he, Yeshua, also took the cup after the Passover, emphasis added, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread of affliction, again emphasis added, and drink this cup of wine, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So let's talk about God's covenants of salt and how these relate to the everlasting covenant. Leafy vegetables were historically dipped in red wine to symbolize the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. But parsley is now commonly substituted as to today we cannot find hyssop. And the practice was then switched to dipping in red wine vinegar, but now has been changed to salt water. Now, some say that the salt water signifies Israel's tears of affliction while we were slaves. Others suggest it represents the tears that Yeshua shed over Jerusalem because of the destruction he saw coming. These are probably true to an extent, but I believe there's a deeper meaning that lies in the suffering of our Messiah that he endured on the cross for our transgressions. Salt is the sign of God's eternal and everlasting promises, and the Lord calls them covenants of salt. One covenant he made with the house of Aaron, the priestly lineage that came through Levi. It says in Numbers chapter 18, It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you, Aaron, and your descendants with you. The other covenant he made with the house of David, the kingly lineage that came through the tribe of Judah. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt. Yeshua is the fulfillment of both covenants. He is the king of Israel, but he is also Israel's high priest forever. His name is Malchitzedek, which translates from Hebrew as my king of righteousness. So let's talk about the final exodus. There's an interesting story in the Haggadah called the Discourse of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Rabbi Elazar said, We must remember the day we came out of Egypt every day, all the days of our lives. The sages later added, The days of our life implies our present world and includes the future time of the Messiah. Rabbi Ben Zoma further asserted that in the future, Israel will cease to mention the exodus from Egypt. Well, how is this possible? 
I mean, isn't the exodus from Egypt and the celebration of our liberation from bondage the greatest single event in Jewish history? Well, let's read from Jeremiah chapter 16. It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them, for I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Now, this verse doesn't imply that the Exodus would never be mentioned again, but rather it it tells us that the deliverance from the great exile of Israel to all the nations of the earth shall take precedence and will be an even greater deliverance than that of Egypt. This also implies that Israel's restoration is incomplete. Now, the Haggadah asserts that God has calculated the end, and this phrase is used by the rabbis to refer to the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah. In prophetic literature, this is often called the Day of the Lord. The rabbis also understand that Israel will endure incredible persecution before the arrival of the Messiah. The prophet Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. And so the Passover is more about the future deliverance of Israel than just the remembrance of the past. So let's talk about God's judgment. In the telling of the Exodus story, it is traditional to call out each of the ten plagues. We dip a finger into wine, and then we dab it onto a plate. This is a prophetic demonstration of the finger of God smiting the Egyptians. Rabbi Eliezer said that each of the plagues represents the four dimensions of the fierceness of God's divine anger. His wrath, his indignation, his trouble, and his messengers of evil. God himself executed the final and climactic tenth judgment, and not by any messenger, seraph, or agent. No other created being could have distinguished the seed of the firstborn. It says in Exodus chapter 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This final judgment was executed at the division of the night, otherwise called midnight. And so it's going to be with the coming of our Messiah, because it says in Matthew 25, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Now the Haggadah also correlates the ten plagues with those mentioned in the prophets, specifically the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, and fire, and pillars of smoke. Now, it is customary to pour out wine from the cup for each of these three judgments, and there's a correlation to God's wrath being poured out as described in the book of Revelation. It says in chapter 16, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. This prophetic act demonstrates the severity of God's final wrath against the nations that will come against Israel during the Great Tribulation. It will not be just the ten plagues of Egypt, but the full wrath of God himself, and not just the finger of God, but his full hand to bring destruction to the earth. Israel's first and second redemptions are bookends to her history, her beginning at the time of the Exodus, but also her final restoration at the coming of her Messiah. The Seder is concluded with a popular phrase, next year in Jerusalem, or Now to the Jewish people, this phrase is the ultimate promise of something greater. 
Because at the very core of our faith is the belief that God will one day destroy death. It is the death of death. Death is the greatest enemy of God and man, and it will be the last enemy to be destroyed by God. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This is God's final victory and the very end of the age, when the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I love to conclude the Seder with the scripture from the book of Revelation about the new heavenly Jerusalem that we are waiting for. It reminds us of our glorious hope in the resurrection that we have in Christ and the eternal world to come. It says, Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.